wish, like, I won't show it to you because it's fucked, but, like, my feet are currently, like, pussy and, like, swollen and cut. Like, it is yes. not a cute look. <laughs> are your feet ever a cute look? Excuse you. <laughs> I went through one whole week where they were adorable this summer. You can get back to that point. I can't. This is fucked. Anyways, we should get started. Yeah, I already pressed record. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Fuck. Well, anyways, did anyone hear that my feet are like non-tender meat? Because I think that's the most important takeaway for this comment right now. They are tenderized. No marbling on your feet. No marbling, just a lot of pus and like cuts, like literal oh, open my- wounds. Oh, that's anyways, I'm sorry. Horrifying. It is rather horrifying. Um, welcome to Pantry Staples, <laughs> the podcast where we dish on your favorite foods. <laughs> I'm Emily, and I have horrific feet. Um, I'm Marika, and my feet are—I mean, not great. It's been a while since I've gotten a pedicure. I and, feel like um... your feet are very cute. Oh, I mean, like aesthetically, they're like very normal and fine. It's just mm. currently the heels are a bit rough. Mm. Them's the brakes. Yeah, I it's too much sandals. I, it's summer's a bitch for your feet, hey. But then again, so is winter. We can never win. Just cut them off. Dirt. Feet transplant. <laughs> I've been saying it for years. The second I can get size ten, not size eleven feet, I am there for it. Like I just want that. That's not. I don't think that's much to ask. Anyways. When I was younger, Old Navy had a, like an ad campaign where they were searching for feet models. And my mom looked at my sister and goes, Allie, you could do that. And then looks at me and says nothing. And I'm just like, holy <laughs> shit. And that was the first time I realized my feet were fugly. Oh. <laughs> it's fine. I live with it. I live in this hell every day. Here's um, the thing. I don't think you want to be a foot model. Like, just the foot fetishing. Like, not to kink shame, but it's... It... I just want the It's a lot. Did I tell you about the two separate interactions I had about trying to sell my shoes online? No. Oh my god. So, okay, first of all, as a woman who has size 11 feet, I'm- there's two different ways that it can go when you're trying to sell shoes, right? Mm -hmm. One, I had a man who I'm pretty sure was buying them to smell, which is fine. Do you, sir? I mailed them to him. He paid for the shipping. He was very reasonable to deal with. I was like 10 out of 10 on this interaction. Love it. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Then I had another man, or I, I don't want to say gender is, yeah. <laughs> no, they were male. And this person was saying, I'm male, I'm straight, but I'm, you know, really considering cross-dressing, but I'm so like uncomfortable doing it that I need to do it like in private. Is there any chance that if I bought these shoes from you, you would teach me how to do makeup? And I was like, sir, I can barely apply mascara to myself. I'm so sorry. I don't think I'm the right person for this. And then they go, but do you think that if I got a hotel room, we could go there and then we could watch YouTube videos together and do that? And I was like, I can't do that. So there was a lot going on. Were the shoes purchased? No, only the first pair was. They backed out Mm. when I wouldn't go to a hotel room with them, which, I mean, fair. Fair on your part. I think going to a hotel room with stranger during a pandemic too. Like this. Oh, this was like recently. This was recently. I was trying to like. Oh my god! When I finally got back to Toronto, I was like doing the clear out of my stuff, right? And I was like, gotta get rid of some of these shoes. I don't fucking wear them. Like, there's no point in it. And then this all went down, and I was like, in God's name, is happening to me? Anyways. So yeah, no shame on if you want to. I'm super cool with that. 
but I'm really not equipped to help. Like, unfortunately, I wish I was better at makeup. Yeah, I feel like my makeup skills have drastically decreased since just, I don't know, not being in high school. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, not being, like, I don't know, the shit I used to do was so fucking ridiculous and, like, didn't look good, of course, because nobody in high school really has got their shit mastered unless you're a high school no. student now, in which case now you all look amazing. I don't know what you're doing. Um, but, like, I was so self-conscious about my skin, which was fine at the time. And I would put, like, so much foundation on, but I didn't realize you should put powder over top of it. And no one fucking stopped me. So I was just, like, oily. It was so fucked. I would do, like, a smoky eye, but it was just using, like, one dark eyeshadow. Like, black. Like, I would just, like, put, like, rim my eyes in, like, black eyeshadow and be like, this looks good. (laughs) Did you have brown hair at this time? Yes. I can see it for you. I think this is, uh... I can see it as a really good look, actually. I am not saying that sarcastically either. I think it works for you. I feel like I could. I was also, I mean, exceptionally pale, of course. And like Mm. not even like goth or emo or any of those sort of like scene aesthetics. It was just, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just like, oh, yes, in the magazines, they've got dark. It was also a time when dark eyeshadow was a thing. Here's the thing. The mid-2000s were an absolute fucking crapshoot. So anything we did was fine. Um, and yeah, it's rough. Nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. No, We are extremely Weird topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyways, today's topic is not my feet or cross-dressing makeup or, or makeup or any of that. It's Wagyu beef, baby. It Ayo. is. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> the enthusiasm runs high. I'm so sorry. I'm so tired is the other thing. Like I am just fucking wiped. Um, That's fine. It's been a, it's been a week at work anyways. So let me tell you a bit about Wagyu. So Wagyu literally just means Japanese cow. So the wa means Japanese and gu means cow. So Wagyu, Japanese cattle. That's it. So why is this so special? So the cattle that comprise Wagyu are originally draft animals that have more intramuscular fat cells. So this is what would give them a greater stores of energy so that they could continue working. They have just this built up reserve, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, these fat cells then lead to a more heavily marbled cut of meat, which are then very tender and very flavorful because fat equals flavor. So when you're getting a leaner steak, you're not getting as much flavor in there. Um, right. Yeah. It actually looks like, I don't know if you, how many pictures you looked of, of marble and, or Wagyu meat when you were doing this, but I was like, this shit is completely pink as opposed to a regular, well, not regular, but like an Angus or a prime or USDA or whatever cut that you're looking at where it's red on the inside with like veins running through it. Whereas Wagyu, it literally is just like, it's like the opposite. It's like. It's like yeah. fat with like veins of meat. Exactly. <laughs> like no, a hundred percent, which is wild. Um, so the classification of this is very specific. So the chart is done two ways. You have A, B, and C, which describes the yield that you're getting from the carcass with A being the highest yield of about 72%. And then I think it mm-hmm. was for B, like 60 something percent, and then C being the lowest. And then you have from one to five, which is the amount of marbling with five being the highest. So in Japan, they actually only will sell you a three to five. That's the only thing that's certified for sale. Everything else is just not good enough. So these cattle are actually fed from rice, wheat, and hay three times a day. 
Um, only the pregnant cattle are allowed to graze. So it's like a very specific, as with all kind of high-end cattle, I would say, a very mm-hmm. specific feeding schedule, a very specific diet, a very specific, just like anything about their care is very, very like regulated. Yes. Especially in Japan where they have such interest in the bloodline specifically. Um, just, yeah, very, they're keeping an eye on all their shit. Um, so let's talk about the history of this cattle. So there's four breeds that are used for Wagyu, which is the Japanese Black, the Japanese Brown, the Japanese Pulled, and the Japanese Shorthorn. So cattle is not indigenous to Japan. It is, it was imported from China around the second century CE. It was not considered a food source until about the mid 1800s. This is because there, it's not really, there's not enough food for them to eat there. Like the grazing was very hard to get them to the correct Mm -hmm. size. They were just used as pack animals pretty much exclusively. Um, yeah. It was completely isolated from foreign breeds because they had no need to really breed it to make it, you know, bigger, fatter, whatever. And also because Japan was for quite a long time very isolated from the rest of the world. Um, yes. It was... Both on, mm. I was gonna say, both on purpose and sort of by virtue of being a group of islands. Exactly. Totally. It was just... The set of circumstances that worked out. So it was like, okay, this is this is what we're doing. Um, so from 1685 to 1855, that was like specific, like this is isolation. And then the Meiji restoration occurred, which is when it went back to like empirical rule. And so things changed a bit then. Between 1868 to 187, or sorry, 1887, there was 2,600 foreign cattle brought into Japan to be crossbred with these. I don't want to say indigenous because they weren't indigenous to Japan, but like the native cattle, I guess, is you yeah, know, the ones like, they got from China. Typically Japanese, I think, mm-hmm. is kind of a terminology that they use a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this crossbreeding between these cattle that are being brought in runs rampant. And through the crossbreeding, there's an eventual deterioration of the quality of the cattle for meat and for labor. So this leads to a serious reversal from like this willy nilly breeding. Mm that went on and in 1919 these crossbreeds were consolidated and registered into groups called improved japanese cattle which i thought was a very fun term i love it so also just like please note that 1919 there's like a war on mm. yeah mm-hmm. well like in not, europe not there yeah. but like in europe just like interesting mm-hmm. that i thought that, i don't know but then more interestingly is that in 1944 these improved japanese cattle are recognized as the four main breeds that make up the wagyu meat production 1944 were they not busy like <laughs> japan was very specifically engaged with other things right but this is actually follows along kind of like a similar vein of busyness <laughs> like it's all about inherent japanese-ness and reinforcing that sort of national identity and national pride like to be like these are the four like very important very specific very japanese even though totally they're imported (laughs) even though they're technically imported yes and like have this really like european history to them and also very Mm -hmm. chinese history to them uh they are still very much like part of that identity that's an excellent point 1997 they're actually like identified as a national treasure like these are so central to this, mm-hmm. like, the culinary culture of Japan at this point. Anyways, so let me tell you a little bit about these four different breeds. So the Japanese black, this is what makes up, like, I think it's something silly, like, 97% or, like, 90%, like, a very high percentage of all Wagyu beef is the Japanese black. 
breed. So okay. this originates from southwestern Japan. So there's a bunch of places, Kyoto, Hyogo, uh, Hiroshima, which again, 1944, Hiroshima is where we've decided we're going to get our fucking cattle from. Like, interesting choices, people. <laughs> is like, it's 46, is that, but yeah, so. <laughs> does that not seem weird to you? Well, they didn't know that they were going to be horrifically, you know, bombed in 44. I don't know, man. <laughs> just seems like that's this is no but 44 is when they've decided like yeah okay these are the breeds we're doing and then they're like yeah this er, i don't know it seems concerning to me anyways um Oikeyama, shimane tutorio yamaguchi kagoshima and if i'm saying all these wrong i'm so sorry oita ehime um anyways these cattle are all a mix of the descendants of the original cattle brought over from china bred with Brovia Cimental, which is Switzerland uh, or Swiss cattle, Irishshire, Devonshire, or sorry, Devon and Shorthorn from the UK, and Holstein from Germany and the Netherlands. So again, like a very European like influence on those. Uh, the mm-hmm. Japanese blacks, like I said, make up the largest percentage of the Wagyu com- uh, cattle, and the dominant uh, black Wagyu strains are the Tatori, the Tajima, the Shimane, and the Okayama. Thank you. Uh, which are the subbreeds of the Japanese black. The most notable is the Tajima. This is the strain that's raised, or only when it's raised in Hyoga, Hyogo, is this going to be marketed as Kobe beef. So the big right. buzzword of Kobe beef, that's what it is. It's again very terroir specific, just like mm-hmm. you would with champagne, which is so yes. interesting. Yes. Uh, Anytime they're like, oh yeah, this is a food with weird rules around it, and uh, you can only call it this if it's from here, I'm like, oh, interesting. Do tell me more, slash feed me more. I love it. Um, so that's fun. Um, then you have the Japanese polled. This breed originates from southwestern Honshu, which was crossbred mainly with the Scottish Angus cattle. This breed's population is critically low. It's not endangered, but there's only, I think in 2008, it said there was only 132 recorded. So... Mm. Any kind of Wagyu that you are getting outside of Japan is not going to be this one because they're just not going to be sending that cattle over. Um, anyways, then you have the Japanese brand brown. Sorry, this breed originates in southern Japan, Shikoku Island and Kyushu Island, and was crossbred from the British Devon, the Korean Hanwu, and the Swiss Cemental, which is interesting. You got a little Korean beef in there. Throw some fun yeah. in. Yeah. Um, then you have the Japanese Shorthorn. This breed originated from the northernmost part of Honshu, Akita, Ayamori, and Iwate. I don't know how to say that. Sorry. And was crossbred from the British Shorthorn, Irishard, and the Devon. This breed is less marbled than the Japanese Black and therefore less desirable. So the main ones that you're getting in kind of export are the Japanese Brown and the Japanese Black. The other two are kind of the sub there. Anyways. Mm-hmm. So originally Wagyu could only be found in Japan as one of the conditions of its classification because it sorry because one of the conditions of its classification was that it was raised in japan eventually Uh though japan relaxed its export policies and a few heads of cattle were brought to foreign countries um so again all these breeds they're meticulously traced they're registered there's a huge amount of like government and also independent oversight into these cows because the brand is so strong and this can only be maintained through strict conditions there's a huge financial incentive to make sure the breeders maintain their standards and that external groups don't start claiming that they produce wagyu uh in 2006 japan even suggested patenting the name and genetic sequence of their wagyu yes. to keep it, yeah which is so interesting to keep it in um it's like their own authentic food 
which again, we talked about so freaking interesting. Um, this mandate requests that the international community acknowledge that Wagyu is an authentic Japanese product to patent the specific gene code and that the distribution of Wagyu semen is controlled. There's barcodes on all of the little tubes of semen, which I was like, <sighs> whose job is that? They yes. must love the cows. I read this same article and just like, oh, it's crazy. I also didn't, I couldn't quite find out if they actually were able to get all of these sort of recommendations and requests. I don't think that they were. Like, I, I don't think, think they were either. No. It was just, like, this is just like the mentality that's around it, which is so interesting because I found there was a real like drop off of information between like kind of 2006, 2008 to like current day. I just mm -hmm. found like, okay, like it's not really sure what happened. Well, I think some of the stuff I read, it's like you can't really like patent or trademark like a far like an agricultural product or something like that mm. which is interesting because they obviously they do it all the time with like wine and grapes and also isn't there like okay there's the specific kinds of like cheeses and meats in like italy and stuff like that like i'm pretty sure mm -hmm. which one is it where or like in span the uh, in span in spain the iberian ham that's like yeah yeah, that's all very specific. And again, maybe it's because there's not the legal component to it. It's just like the identity that's so. But it it is like a legal thing, and I. But I think with this, it's like the the uh, Japanese like Ministry of Agriculture wanted more to like patent like the cow itself, which I guess that's like the problem. It's like you can't mm -hmm. have a claim to like a breed. I don't know. That's really weird that you can't. I would imagine you could. Yeah, or maybe it's just that it's too recent. Like the mm. all of those other sort of terroir designations happened like later or earlier. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I don't. I. I could. I know it was weird to not that. be able to find that out. Yeah. Yeah, and again, just like the complete like lack of information between that like two thousand six, two thousand eight, and to like then it was like got like a bit for twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen. In between, I'm just like, what the fuck was anyone doing? Not writing it down clearly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, maybe they were just too busy slinging these slabs of meat. Anywho, <laughs> um, they also, like I said, were wanting to apply the term Wagyu to only cattle raised in Japan. Again, like champagne, those sorts of things. Uh, they also wanted the breeders to continually improve the heritage of the breed. So I think that's a huge component of this too, mm. is that like there's this huge interest in improving constantly what they're doing and making sure it's very like again the 1944 like decision of all of this eugenics big on the minds of everyone like <laughs> keeping these i'm just saying keeping i know bloodlines very pure keeping like just really really looking at every single step of the breeding process very closely to ensure the absolute best which is a great attempt and an interesting thought experiment and concerning at other stages. Anywho. Um, so despite these huge concerns about keeping it very, very Japanese, uh, mm -hmm. we have seen these cattle allowed to be exported in 1976. Four Wagyu bulls were imported to the U S and I got such a fucking kick out of this. Two of the <laughs> Japanese like brown slash red bulls, they were called judo and Rusha judo are you kidding me and then the two japanese black bulls were mazda and mount fuji like mount I'm sorry. just <laughs> mount fuji mount fuji they might as well have just called one of these rice like what the fuck <laughs> just like sushi sushi the bull sushi the Actually, bull i mean that's better. adorable yeah um 
Anyways, these were crossbred with Angus cattle and other continental breeds. So in 1993, three female Japanese black cattle were brought to the U.S., allowing a full-blood Wagyu to be bred outside of Japan for the first time. Mm. So that's, like, again, before we have, what was the term I heard? It was um, Wangus, which is disgusting, and I love it. I do, oh, I hate that. It's so bad, but it's so good. Um, anyways, so it's Wagyu and Angus beef like mm-hmm. brought together so that's what mm-hmm. we're getting originally and then we are able to finally not we i say it like i've been like really <laughs> fucking just like getting in there and like inseminating heifers anyways um that's when 1993 was when we have the first pure blood outside of japan uh between 1994 and 1997 less than 200 full blood wagyu cattle were brought to the u.s after 1997 japan uh designated Wagyu as a national treasure and an export ban was put in place. So this has led to the real rarity of Wagyu outside of Japan. So when you're going to a restaurant that's serving Wagyu in North America specifically, and I would assume in Europe, it would be the same case as well. uh, Mm -hmm. That's probably not from Japan. Like look at the price of what you're paying. Look at like just in general, the political situation and the export climate of it, most likely what you're getting is something from America, or if you're in Europe, it's probably from Australia. Right. Interesting, just in terms of like, they wanted to really keep this as a very Japanese thing, a very Japanese identity, which I think the identity is still very much there, but what's actually being produced is not necessarily Japanese. Well, it's interesting because it almost seems to have had the opposite effect of what they were maybe hoping to achieve because, and maybe this is, because they weren't able to patent it as like, it has to come from Japan in order to be called Wagyu. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, and I'm not sure if you're going to talk about this, but I was going to talk about it later. Like you can't have Kobe from like Australia or California. No. Because Kobe means that it's from the town of Kobe. Exactly. Like it's very, very specific. And I read a couple of articles that were real shady just being like, if you see a Kobe beef burger on a menu, that's fake news because you can't get that for $15. Are you insane? And also the meat is too tender. It will not form a patty. People being like (laughs) up in arms about it. And I was like, yes, you should be. I do not want to be lied to on a menu. Or maybe I don't know. Well, I I had this. Did you see the, there was a inside edition like expose and like the journalism was just so wild and so like oh my goodness like (laughs) i can't but they basically like like blew the lid off the whole thing where it's like there are only eight restaurants in america that are selling like certified kobe like everywhere else like it's just like wagyu and they go in and like are like interviewing managers and the restaurant managers like well like is it kobe and they're like i don't see where you're getting into like the semantics of this word was like well (laughs) Okay, well, I want to have a dramatic reading of that afterwards, please. (laughs) Um, Anyway, sorry, let's continue. I'm almost done my facts of this. Yeah. Um, So, yes, it's very rare outside of Japan. Uh, Wagyu ranches have been established in America. So, in Texas, Iowa, Idaho, Oregon, and New Mexico, just to name a few, there's a classification system in the U.S. that allows crossbred Wagyu and Angus cattle to be called Wagyu. So they require 50% of traceable Wagyu genes for an F1 rating. F2 is 75%, F3 is 93.75, and a full blood Wagyu is 100%. So interesting that like, even when you're looking at a menu and it's like, okay, it says Wagyu, it's probably just 50% Wagyu grown in fucking Idaho. Like, Mm. 
not at all what you think of when you hear the term wagyu. You assume that this is 100% from Japan, 100% from Japanese cattle. But it's not. Yeah. I also wonder, do people even think that? Like, I want, like it's become just such a buzzword at this point. Where, like, the using hmm. of Kobe and wagyu sort of, like, interchangeably. And it's just like, oh, yeah, like, it just means, like, good beef. Like, I think I, there are a lot of people that just think about it that way. Yeah, that's definitely true. There was a lot of, um, like, I did read something that where I basically said, like, we're not trying to maliciously, like, take the term Kobe and, like, use it, you know, to lie. We're just doing it because this is what people understand best. And that's kind of the thing. Mm -hmm. Which, again, I think it breaks it down to all kinds of foods. Like, in every single thing is people need to be more educated about what they're putting in their body. Like, they need to know exactly, like, what it is. Because otherwise, you're getting duped. Well, yeah, not to eat things just because they're trendy. (laughs) Yeah, that... Ugh, but then again, am I not so guilty of that? There was this one article I read that uh, basically before it talked about uh, Wagyu beef, it talked about some sort of like, here, let me pull this up because I'm going to fucking <laughs> tell you the name of it. It's so cool. It's a, a Tonka bean, which is apparently toxic. Oh. Yeah. And I've I definitely like, seen things with like Tonka in it. Yeah. Yeah. But basically, I think in America, the FDA is just like, I don't know, the restaurants can just figure it out, um, <laughs> which was the gist that I got from that article. But uh, anyways, as soon as I heard that term, I was like, I want to fucking eat that. That sounds great. Uh, which just goes to show that I am so partial to the trendy food. I can't even help it. My bad. Anyways. Easily influenced. Easily influenced is the name of my autobiography. Um <laughs> Anyways, in 1990, a live heifer was imported to Australia from the U.S., and this led to one of the largest herds of Wagyu outside of Japan. So Hmm. Australia really is, like, quite – they're quite into their beef, hey? Which, like, I think when you think beef – because we're North American, we automatically think, like, America is the main producer of it. But no, Australia is really – they fuck with that shit. Oh, Um, they're carnivorous. (laughs) They're carnivorous indeed. Everything in Australia wants to eat other animals. Everything. Um, So there's all this like very complicated like timelines of things in terms of, okay, 1997, that's when Japan really shut down on uh, exporting their cattle. And then you have 2003 where you have bovine, spongiform, and something blah 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 or mad cow disease oh i'm getting it i'm gonna good we're gonna full mm, in um a little bit we're gonna dip a toe dip a toe um so mad cow disease appears and this shuts down all trade with japan but that's not from the japanese side this time it's from like the australian side really where they're just like fuck that shit we're not bringing in any nonsense like Mm -hmm. and every all borders basically just tightened up went real tight butthole on those borders um (laughs) Is that not the visual you get, though? Because it is. It's not, but it works. Anyways, so then lastly, my last little bit of history here is Canada got into the Wagyu game in 1991. There's farms in Ontario, PEI, Alberta, and Quebec. Uh, the UK has a huge cord that was imported in 2008. So all of these like other kind of main meat-producing areas are getting into the Wagyu game, but it's kind of hard to do so. Um, And then briefly, I will just talk about how weird it is that we're, like, into meat in Japan in general. Uh, (laughs) One thing here, it's easy to get caught up in the question of genetic ownership and geographical origin. However, the Japanese patent proposal takes a greater significance when we consider that only 150 years ago, the Japanese considered beef a ritually impure (laughs) substance. So, they weren't fucking into it. And then... 
you get you know, these borders being opened back up and they're like, yeah, we're embracing Western culture. We're going to do it. We're going to shove meat down our throats. Like that's, that's the vibe. But now in these days, Wagyu is actually not hugely uh, popular. Like there's been a decline in the popularity in Japan where they're importing a ton of cattle from America uh, and Australia as well. So they're the largest importer of other kinds, but they're exporting a little bit the Wagyu. So weird stuff, weird vibe. That's what I got for you. That is interesting. Um, do, do, do. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> what was I? I was going to talk a bit about the patenting too, but you pretty covered it, covered it quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then let's just like basically get straight into like with Kobe again, just like all of those favorite favorite, like lu- it's got the idea of like luxury. Yes. Yeah, and it's like that idea of like having the best, and I, you kind of mentioned it too. Where there's, I definitely read a lot of articles where it's like actual like butchers and chefs are like people come in here and want like a sixteen ounce like Kobe like steak, and it's like that's disgusting because it's just like lard at that point. Basically, I'm like a lot of the articles talk about how it needs to be so thinly sliced in, in like a very mm. Japanese style in order for it to yeah. be properly eaten. And all I can think is like, yeah, if I was Japanese, I'd be pissed off of this being taken into like this very westernized setting too. And then people being like, oh my God, this is so gross because <laughs> it's just not being done fucking right. Yeah. So let's actually, that leads into the section I was going to talk about later, but we can do it now. Just like the, the rise of the gourmet burger. Ugh. Which I feel like we're sort of on sort of on the out of it now, but there was definitely like five, ten years ago of just like everyone wants just like these like these fancy, expensive burgers with just like truffles. Like wagyu and, and, and wagyu and burgers, and yeah. And like all this bullshit. Yeah, so we've got like In N Out Burger, Smash Burger, Umami Burger, which mm-hmm. just as like a side note, their logo, I don't know if you've ever look this mm. up but it looks like pouting lips and i hate it oh like it's like a supposed up. to be like a bun and like a burger but it, it yeah. looks like super like uh, but we'll get into beef and sexualization later so yeah so all of these chains basically attract consumers with the idea of like a gourmet but still fast food experience a 2011 burger consumer trend report found what? that almost Half of all consumers eat a burger a week. Really? Yeah, which is crazy. Because when you think of the averages on that, that means somebody's eating a burger like every day. Yeah. Hmm. So it's like, but then at the same time, we still have like vegetarianism, veganism, and Mm -hmm. just sort of like more moderate notions of eating less meat are definitely like, those are also on the rise. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, especially with younger consumers, if you're going to eat like your burger a week, <laughs> your one burger a week, you, they want something that's like better. Like they don't just want like basic fast food. And Fair. this report also found that people are willing to like pay money for it. Hmm. So the diet treatment and provenance of cows fated to become burgers are important questions that a lot of consumers have. So we want to know about whether the meat is grass-fed, hormone, antibiotic, and steroid-free. And so that's actually becoming sort of the norm. I know in Canada, we can't Yeah, the regulations are incredibly strict. Well, you can have antibiotics, but it has to be exclusively for medical purposes as opposed to, like, growth hormone relations. Yeah. 
so interesting that now we have to get to a point to be like, yeah, we have like antibiotic free burgers. Like who the fuck was okay with the being riddled with other shit before? Well, all the United States still lets it happen. Disgusting. Disgusting. It's it's truly horrifying. And it's the reason that we have a crisis of uh, antibiotic resistance. And it's Did basically you going back. to podcast episode? That was so good. Yes. But I also yeah. know this stuff anyway. Because yeah. you're not an idiot. <laughs> and I don't eat meat. <laughs> yeah, also that. Again, my people are the worst. Most people are the worst. Mm. Truth. So the rise of the gourmet burger can be related to the notion of quote unquote good taste and the idea that aesthetic preferences and cultural choices are linked to uh, a higher social class, mm. which we kind of touched on a little bit with fish sauce and the idea of being like a cosmopolitan eater. Oh, <laughs> and it's so true. Like I feel it mm-hmm. constantly when I'm like making my food choices, I'm like, Oh gosh, like I hope th- and not so much of like, Oh, I want to be cosmopolitan and eat this, but I feel like, Oh God, am I going to be like, am I a real trash human for loving like this trash thing? Yeah. But then you also get this weird like hipster desire of like white American like consumerism where we want to eat a more elevated comfort food. So it's like, we like that mix of a high and low culture. That's so true. I literally made crab mac and cheese last night for dinner. Yeah. My, I had a, like my one birthday wish a couple years ago was to have champagne and like French fries and vegetarian chicken nuggets. That sounds delicious. I could really go for that right now. I mean, the pairing is correct. So, (laughs) so we've got this notion of sort of like what makes, it's called like food legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So it's based, so what makes a food legitimate, it's authenticity and then also exoticism. So an example of this is the Rossini burger Mm -hmm. from Hubert Keller's burger bar in Las Vegas. So it is described as a Kobe style Wagyu beef from Australia. So (laughs) technically they're not incorrect because they say style, but it's like, bro. But like, that's just a lot of words to describe your meat. Mm -hmm. It's got sauteed foie gras and shaved truffles. Uh, according to the article that I read about it, it costs $60. But then when I went to the burger bar website, there were like no prices listed because of course. And you know what they say, if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. <laughs> yes, truly. I think and that is the whole thing. I feel like I heard so, that in an episode of Kim Possible, by the way, which I still think is the most hilarious thing ever. Anywho. It's, it's not wrong. So yeah, so you can see from that, it's got the elements of exoticism and authenticity from its high-end ingredients, but because it's a burger, the quote-unquote hip consumer maintains their self-conscious, hearkening back to basic American food staples. Yeah, the burger is so American. Like, it's so American. So you sort of touched a little bit on the, like, trade going on between Japan and the United States and, like, mad cow disease. But, like, let's get into the whole, like, bans and trade kerfuffles. It's great. So I read, like, a whole series of articles. And it's funny because I kind of read them in, like, out of sequence. And then was able to go back and, like, Trace be like, oh, bro, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Oh, that's so fun. (laughs) Yeah. So 1971, Yujiro Hayama, who's, I don't know, like a 
an economist in Japan, mm. uh, writes in favor of a liberalization of beef trade between Japan and the global market. So at the time of this article's sort of writing, Japan's average per capita intake of beef was less than one-tenth that of Australia or the U.S. So as we were talking before, it's like they don't, it's not a traditional it's not super food. Common. No. And I think for, this is something that I also read for a population that like didn't eat meat at all before, introducing mm. meat is very like, it's like aggressive to your system. Like if you were to eat a yeah. rib steak right now, you'd die. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. Well then we can also, I'll sort of later get into like, but like not really because I don't have time and I only got into these really good articles about meat like this morning, but just Same. the idea of eating meat as tied to like social class so true it's just a common thing poor people can't afford things yeah and so then rich people are gonna like do the whole like i'm gonna eat this even though it's bad for me because it makes me look more rich yeah. aka that fucking 60 dollar burger with like too much shit like you couldn't eat that that's too rich no it's not good and it's also so like I, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but just, like, the idea of, like, going to a restaurant and ordering Wagyu is so fucking trendy. Like, that is – and so goddamn, like, mm, blah, blah, blah. Like, I can't count on the um, my hand how many times people have called at work and just been like, uh, we work at a steakhouse. I feel like that should be mentioned here real quick. Yeah. Um, not – well, the same one, but not together anymore. R.I.P. <laughs> um, but, like, the amount of times people call and be like, do you have Wagyu? And we're like, no. Or the amount of times when people call and be like, I want fucking foie gras up the ass. Bitches be obsessed. I want that static what? foie gras and that it's status Wagyu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, name dropping. Yeah. But like food. But then again, I'm, I'm sure we're both very guilty of that. Just like, mm, have you tried mm-hmm. this? It's amazing. <laughs> it's like, mm, was that just kava? Oh, kava. Kava's delicious. Anyway. Kava is delicious. So, blah, 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 blah. Beef importation in the 70s when this guy of this person. I don't know the... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Beef importation in the 70s uh, was severely restricted in an attempt to protect the domestic beef production, which Hayami calls inefficient. Like, so shady. Love it. Mm. And as we sort of talked about before, historically, cattle in Japan were used as like beasts of burden, draft animals. They pulled the farm equipment. And then after they had sort of been working animals for a couple of years, they were fattened up and sold for meat, basically like as a byproduct of just normal farming. As just like, a, okay, you're no longer good for like draft work anymore like sorry bye kind of thing or is I think, it or also just like it was like okay like we'll have you do some work and now it's like okay we've got some more let's make an extra couple bucks and sell fatten up the cow and sell it i did read an interesting article well not really the entire article i read like half of it which is why i haven't super touched on it um where it was discussing they'd done like research on cattle they'd broken the wagyu beef into three separate categories is like grazing uh barn kept and then exercised and the exercise did produce like richer fattier steaks yeah because they've developed all those fat things which obviously makes sense well and i was going to talk about a little bit later Mm -hmm. but wagyu were like basically bred and they store their fat in their muscles yeah so fucking cool it's very cool um so yeah so but by the 60s the like tractors existed yeah <laughs> so they didn't need the cows 
Sorry. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Just. Oh. Sorry. Um, so they had switched to like using dairy cows basically the same way. So it's like you are there for like milk and shit. And then we fatten you up and turn you into beef. Hmm. And that was, so that sort of industry was expanding pretty quickly, but not fast enough for Hayami, who notes that most raising and feeding operations only had about five cows. What? Like, taking in the average, it was like, yeah. So, like, a lot of the farms were in super remote, depopulated areas, and basically just, like, raised one or two Wagyu as a side business to what was mostly just, like, subsistence farming. So, they're just living their life, farming for themselves so that they can eat out in like rural nowhere and then they're like oh yeah like but we can raise a couple cows and sell them that's so interesting when you visualize that kind of like very specific kind of experience and then compare it to the very specific experience of buying wagyu at a restaurant to like have this very luxurious product and it's just it came from like a small farm in the middle of nowhere well they don't do this anymore (laughs) well but still anyways yes but then it's also interesting to kind of contrast that because i read some other articles about Mm. Um, like beef production and cattle raising in like North America. Mm. And I mean, obviously like most of the meat, like 90% at least comes from like huge, like feedlot farms. But then you also get like little like organic farmers and um, like ethically raised animals where, yeah, like the one farmer maybe has like 50 cattle or just like a couple and like knows all of their names. And that's kind of what this seems like, which I don't know. It's, cute but it, it is, is efficient yeah again the fucking demands of capitalism mm. destroying all the cute things so yes. and chance for us to name our fucking cattle rice and sushi, rice. <laughs> sushi. jesus christ <laughs> like i feel like they might have just as well named these fucking cattle like racial slurs at that point like it just seems like yeah, i mean are we surprised no but anyways. Uh, so yes. So Hayami concedes that domestic beef, so Wagyu, is better quality than the imported, uh, mostly grass-fed beef that they were getting at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that the Japanese beef sector in the 70s is, so first of all, they have a lack of land. Mm-hmm. And Which then I feel secondly, like is very common for all issues of agriculture in Japan. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, there's nowhere to fucking grow shit. Yeah, and then there's just like a total, there's a difficulty in turning the sort of traditional Wagyu raising practice into a modern business, which like, again, fair, but yeah, makes sense. So yeah, then the article kind of goes into a lot of economic stuff about price stabilization, and there were lots of charts, and I, if I had an app, and, um, but in the end, uh, Hammy outlines a plan that would benefit both domestic producers and foreign exports and consumers. And actually, it's sort of like what ended up happening. Hmm. So we jump ahead to 1988. Japan signs uh, trade agreements with the US and Australia to pretty much fully liberalize the Japanese beef market. They're not going to put like quotas and restrictions and price sort of stabilization things. In 1989, Australia accounted for 51% of Japanese beef imports, and the US is 46, which is a pretty big change. So in the 77 numbers, had Australia providing 86%. Wow. So the trading agreement really benefited the U.S. import, I guess. That's, like, very significant in quite a short amount of time. Yeah. 
So this article writing about this is from 1991, and they provide an analysis of the trends in the Japanese meat beef market since the new agreement. Uh, they predicted that given the higher quality of heavily marbled beef coming from the U.S. and the fact that at the time, the U.S. was the dominant beef producer free of foot and mouth disease, that the U.S. would soon become mm. the dominant exporter of beef for Japan. Which, like, I think it is still, but... Right. However, uh, let's jump to 2005 with this uh, Inside Washington article titled, quote, U.S. patience wears thin as Japan readies discussion on beef ban. Because, lol, at that hubris of 1991, America's got mad cow. (laughs) I'm sorry, but if there's a disease that ever really sounds like it captures the American ethos, I would say mad cow is exactly that. Yes. I mean, UK, the UK had it, like, first. Yeah, it also tracks with them, too. Okay, so bovine, spongiform, and cephalopathy, BSE... Do you remember like the mad cow thing? I remember when people like can can could humans get it? I feel like I was never very clear on that. But I, I feel remember, like I was told that they could. Yeah, I think I was told that too. And I remember vividly walking across the field at elementary school and people just being like, "Yeah, mad cow disease." And I was like, "What the fuck is this about? Like, can't even trust a steak anymore." Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. I was, like, nine, just being, like, really worked up about my fucking food supply being threatened. Just, just like, what? <laughs> I feel like there were, like, a lot of weird jokes about, like, mad cat, like, mad dog. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. mad dog. People were very into that. And it's like, no, that's rabies, bitch. It's just, like, I don't get it. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So, Japan banned U.S. beef importation in uh, December 2003 after the first cow uh, with... BSE was discovered in the U.S. Want to hear some real disgusting facts about why these outbreaks yeah. keep happening? Ugh. So at the time of this, the article that I was reading, the U.S. had apparently banned feeding cattle any feed made with ruminant products, a.k.a. other cows and goats and shit. What an idea that we wouldn't feed an animal itself. However... They didn't ban feeding them leftover steaks or other restaurant waste or poultry litter. So you just can't feed them raw friends. Raw friends. Title of our punk rock album. (laughs) Truly. Oy, oy, oy. Um, So yeah, so another sidebar about how gross it all is. So cows fed on corn, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. most of cows, especially in the U.S., Mm-hmm. have an altered pH balance in their stomachs, which can cause it to ulcerate and allow bacteria such as E. coli to enter the bloodstream, which contaminates the meat during slaughter, basically. So, sorry, is this just then, if you were feeding your cattle an exclusively, or not exclusively, but like a predominantly corn diet, you are putting them at risk of like just fucking up their stomachs so badly that they can... Like, the disease is just passing through them like no other. Just like, yep, here you go. Now it's into you. Yep. Oy, oy, oy. But nobody cares because it's so much cheaper. And, like, we're at the point, like, you can fatten up cows by feeding them, like, a corn high-fat diet, basically. Mm -hmm. So you can slaughter them way earlier so maybe they won't have time to develop, like, ulcers. Seems like a risky strategy, but all right. 
So, but it gets worse because thanks to the highly centralized slaughter industry, Mm. E. coli can also spread to like all of the other carcasses in the slaughterhouse. One hamburger usually contains meat from at least a hundred cattle, apparently. So you can see how a single cow with E. coli or BSE could very easily cause like a massive outbreak. What's so interesting about this too is that this is a predominantly like U.S. issue. Like the regulations mm-hmm. on like, your slaughter centers basically are so strict in Canada, like yeah. absolutely so. There's they do it in three eight-hour shifts, where like the first two you slaughter, and then the last like the third eight-hour shift is an incredibly thorough disinfecting of everything. Like there's it's just so much cleaner in general. But mm-hmm. in Canada, you cannot order like a like a burger like the patty cooked under a certain level because yes. they're concerned about that whereas in the u.s it's common to get like a rare burger where yeah. you were in a country that has little fucking care about the cleanliness of the equipment and also the like safety of these animals oh my god what a fucking terrible idea yeah it's like the reason nobody hears about all of these like e coli outbreaks and like meat being recalled is because it's so common it's like not news that's so deeply depressing so um yeah but back to like bands and shit yeah sorry (laughs) japan being like maybe we shouldn't import all our meat from the u.s what an idea so it seems basically like there was probably a lot of like other political stuff going on behind the scenes uh the u.s had banned japanese beef in march of 2000 because of a foot and mouth disease outbreak and up until that time japan was shipping nine metric metric tons of wagyu to the u.s so Clearly, they ramped up their efficiency. Yeah. It's not just five cows. Yeah. Um, a Japanese official is quoted in this Inside Washington article as warning that if the Japanese ban on U.S. beef is lifted, based on what is perceived to be political pressure, Japanese consumers would still not buy U.S. beef. Good for them. They see a mad cow disease and they're like, no, thank you. However... Uh, according to a study done in 2012 by uh, Peterson and Burbage, it ended up actually not like super being the case. And maybe this was because the ban was lifted like later, uh, about 2006. So um, obviously the beef ban affected the Japanese beef market and the U.S.'s share in it. Pre-ban, the U.S. exports to Japan totaled $1.4 billion dollars. Afterwards, Australia picked up the slack, and up until the time. Uh, of the study remained dominant. So U.S. exports, I guess that was going to be in 2008 is what these Mm. numbers are. Yes. U.S. exports valued were valued at 383 million in 2008, which is about a third of their 2003 numbers. Huh. Hard to recover from, you know, crazy cow. Yeah. Well, and also just like you've been out of the game for like a couple of years and Australia's exporting. And also it's like fucking closer, isn't it? Or is it just that it looks closer on the map and I shouldn't trust that? No, it definitely is because if you were yeah. flying to Europe from Australia, you lay over in Asia. Yeah, I think Japan is closer too. Especially I don't yeah. Geography is so I'm so bad at geography. I just Also can't. just like Yeah, I f- don't fuck with that either but like especially the recent revelation that like oh yeah the map's super fucking inaccurately represented which like i should have known sooner but like 
what a great idea that we can, we'll finally fucking realize that now. Yeah. It's like, who knew that by trying to put something that's like a sphere into a flat surface, shit would get fucked. And that those early, like, white, male, Eurocentric explorers who were drawing the map were gonna be biased. And wrong. Just so interesting, too, because, like, I have, like, a map of, like, the ancient Roman Empire on my thing and on my wall. And all of the, like, countries and everything look, like, so different from what we see them as represented now. And it's like, oh, no, maybe in 50 years when I'm old, the map will look very different. And I'll just be like, back in my day. I have a bunch of maps from, like, my mom's school that have, like, the USSR on them, which is so fun. So, yes. So, this study uh, done, well, written about in 2012, but was conducted in 2006 and then 2009, respectively, Mm -hmm. looked at the effect of a country of origin label. Hmm. So, which apparently you had to have in Japan on all products since 2000, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, they wanted to see uh, how consumers' buying choices were, like, affected by that in comparison to other specific labeling, Mm. such as organic and non-GMO. Basically, they found that, in general, uh, buying preferences varied varied greatly across age and gender and economic lines, like, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, overall, consumers valued U.S. beef products less and were much willing much more willing to pay more for domestic meats. Hmm. Which is interesting. Yeah. And they also did show a preference for like organic and non-GMO. Like apparently that's something that the consumers think- in Japan care about. Good to know. Do you think yeah. that the interest in having like the Japanese meat as opposed to the US meat has like is that just like very specific like the brand of like US meat has been like fucked with basically or is it more like this is local so we think that that's better um they weren't totally sure Mm. so it was also i think it could be kind of like a national pride like we would rather buy like a japanese product over like a u.s or an australian or like i don't even like a korean one Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was the study was kind of like these are some things that we learned And, like, didn't really draw a ton of conclusions because I guess it's not scientific to just, like, make guesses. (laughs) Weird. That is my favorite thing to do, but okay. I'll allow it. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Um, But, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to know. And I think the whole, like, country of origin labeling is super interesting to me. It's just, like, a practice. Because I know it's, especially recently, I definitely would much rather buy, like, more local produce. Like, I don't want to get, like, garlic coming from China. Yeah. I don't want to get like mm, I don't know, like fruits from Chile. I think we've talked about this before. I think that the entire like gist of it is literally just like we should be going to like farmers markets and buying things like directly from the source and not just like yes. large producers. But anywho, continue. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, so that uh, just like a brief sort of discussion on corn fed versus grass fed beef. Mm. So corn-fed, I think we talked a little bit about in the corn episode, it makes for mm-hmm. very fatty beef very cheaply, which mm-hmm. is what the super, like, mass industrial meat complex is all about. Even if it fucks with their tummies? Yeah, well, and then also, like, humans who eat them. Like, it's not, it's, apparently it's not very good for us. Makes sense. 
Grass, on the other hand, is a cow's natural diet, obviously. <laughs> They're grazing herd animals. So it's kind of <laughs> weird that grass-fed is now like a specialty like beef product. Oof. That's, yeah, that's troubling. Uh, grass-fed beef is has been shown to be lower in total fat and especially in saturated fats. Mm. It's higher in omega-3s, however, which has been linked to uh, aid against heart disease, arthritis, and depression. Hmm. So your grass-fed cow is going to keep you happier. Yes. That should be the I tagline know. right there. You're welcome, grass-fed cow industry. Happy cows, happy humans um wagyu kind of as again like they're just like so fatty and we just like imagine them just like drinking beer and getting massages i love that that's the idea of it and i hate that it's not true i know but like yeah again as we talked about before the way that they've been bred they can store fat in their muscles so Apparently, you can still produce like like the good like fatty signature marbling on a wagyu, even if they're just eating grass. That's the other thing too. I think that needs repeating is that like for something that is so heavily regulated, it, there isn't an exceedingly like specific diet that they're on. Like all producers in all these different regions are allowed to just do whatever the fuck they want. Like. Which is crazy. You'd think that they'd all be like, okay, and here's now where we're going to feed this. Like, everyone has their own thing that they're doing that's very specific, but it's mm-hmm. not overarching. Yeah, well, and then that kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where it becomes more of this idea of, like, because these cows are, like, supposedly, like, authentically Japanese mm-hmm. and are, like, from Japan, therefore they just have the terroir of being Japanese and being a Wagyu, which just makes them like the, the like just turns them into this product that we expect like the finished product like regardless of how they're raised and cared for yeah more just like genetics versus or no like environment specifically as opposed to like outside influence yeah which i don't know if i buy <laughs> i don't think so either i mean like yes you can have like Again, this is really now just getting to the whole nature versus nurture debate. Like, you Uh, and your sister, like, might have the same parents, but if you're eating different things and doing different things and living in different places, like, you're going to be different. Yes, exactly. So, I don't know. This is why we should do more studies on twins. (laughs) Easy there. (laughs) We just got off the eugenics topic. Yeah. I don't mean, like, cut them open. I just mean, like, follow them. <laughs> twins are very scary. Yeah, you're not wrong. Sorry, they make me listeners. very uncomfortable. Um, okay, so I've got one last section here that, again, oh, I wish that I had gotten into this research rabbit hole sooner because so many amazing articles that I just had to kind of skim and, like, books that I didn't have time to dive into. So this mm. is uh, The Sexual Politics of Beef in particular, and meat in general. Will you, first question at the top, will you be discussing the Paris Hilton burger commercial? Um, I am going to be talking about burger commercials, yes. Excellent. Please continue. So the pinnacle resource on the topic of meat and sexuality is Carol J. Adams' uh, 1990 book, The Sexual Politics of Meat, mm. which develops uh, a vegetarian feminist critical theory, which... I didn't read because I didn't have time and I'm going out to buy it immediately 
after record because it basically sounds like it was written for me. <laughs> I was gonna say that seems like your identity in a nutshell. It literally was. I was like, oh my god, I've been screaming about this shit for years. Wow. I'm uh, curious so yeah. about that. So I'm gonna like pull like quotes and sort of like theories from her, even though no, I have not had a chance to read it in full, but it's quoted in like all of the articles that I read for this section. So beef and advertising, let's get straight into it. So we can think of like the classic taglines and like slogans of where's the beef and beef, (laughs) it's what's for dinner, (laughs) which is not even good, but always makes me think of the time a bunch of people were planning a potluck, got together at my dad's work and some lady just yelled, we must have meat. (laughs) That's right. Why? Like, I mean, just really, no, she said that we were not going to have meat. Like, she just really needed to make sure, like, God forbid there wasn't. And it's just, like, so vague. Like, what do you mean? Like, like a casserole? Like, cold cuts? Like, steak? Like, what do you want? She just wanted raw chicken thrown around. <laughs> like, meats. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. So, beef has been called real food for real people by the American Beef Council. But what basically they mean is real food for real men yeah so it's always been linked to masculinity which i mean you could we can go back into i mean i read a bunch of things that tried to figure out sort of like why and like had all of these analyses of like what makes meat like male in the Hmm. con like human consciousness but then they they we don't know it's isn't it just like back to like it's something that I killed and like I'm going to ingest it now. Yeah, and actually now I think that I had sort of talked about that like a little bit later, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Maybe I of that. Yeah, like it's so it's like always been sort of like linked to like hunting and power, and it's yeah, power over another thing basically. Yeah, so beef advertising and especially burgers, obviously they just like assume a male audience. So there's the your Paris Hilton ad. I didn't see that one. What was that one about? Isn't it? I feel like maybe I'm wrong about this and maybe it isn't even Paris Hilton, but I'm 95% sure that there's an ad for like In-N-Out Burger or something like that that's Paris Hilton basically like in a bikini eating a burger on top of a car. Yep. I mean, that's like all of it. That's them. all of it. That's everything. The one, the sort of like the pretty famous one is there's a Carl's Jr. Super Bowl ad from 2015 with Charlotte McKinney. And it's like all Who's natural. A blonde actress with anyway. large boobs. Tracks, yeah. She basically became famous because of this ad. And it's just like, it's shots of just like her like walking down a street. Like you're supposed to assume that she's naked and just like is like constantly like covered up by like other things. There's like a dude just like with a sprinkler and he's like, and just like all of these things like just dudes being things she's just like the narrative over is like i like going all natural and it's basically saying that there's no antibiotics and hormones in the meat and then she like takes a big bite it's like oh she's just wearing a bikini ha 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 that's so weak and also just like five years ago like not that was five years ago oh yeah 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 there's also the super rough burger king it was like a print ad of basically like a woman with her mouth open mm-hmm. and then like a long sandwich and the tagline is it'll blow your mind. 
So if you Google, it's just, it's, it's like, it looks like something that someone made up as like a joke of how over-sexualized ads are, but it's like an, it was an actual ad. It's so crazy that like, this is the best we can do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like nobody's working any harder than just like, Hey, why don't we get a hot chick and something that looks kind of phallic centric? Yeah sauce just like dripping over her like bikini fucking hell so there's there's that whole like subset of just like commercials then there's also ads that sort of claim to center like women like and being like women liking to eat beef but it sort of becomes more about them being like one of the boys like the cool girl narrative Kind of. So there's one in this article that I was talking about that I had to like look up, and it's again Carl's Jr. So maybe they avoid really them. Fall out for it. <laughs> uh, and it shows uh, Mystique from X Men, who's like the shapeshifter. Yeah. And so she's like there, being like her hypersexualized, like basically nude, but just like she's blue, and then like like holding up a burger and as soon as she's like about to eat it she turns into like a dude that's so fucking stupid i love it it's no it's very bad we don't it's obviously very bad but like like, can you just picture that pitch meeting though at like some advertising company where they're just like guys this is what we're doing it's genius are you ready and then that's the idea and every single dude there's like high-fiving each other until their fucking hands fall off (laughs) so i'll just like quote adams because she sums it up better than i could basically paraphrase uh so she says the association between attractive human female bodies and delectable attractive flesh appeals to the appetitive desires as they have been constructed in the dominant culture in which we interpret images from a stance of male identification and human centeredness. That's real good. So yeah. So she's basically just saying that men like capital M men as a very specific man figure are the ones doing the consuming and women and meat and animals are the ones being consumed. Yeah. So I also read an article analyzing a series of Brazilian meat commercials uh, from around 2013. Yes, because Brazil, like obviously a place with machismo. So the Ask for Free Boy campaign, Free Boy spelt F-R-I-B-O-I. I don't speak Portuguese, so I'm probably, it's probably pronounced differently. Uh, but it basically centers around Brazilian uh celebrity tony ramos patriarchically teaching female shoppers that they should ask for free boy meats because they are the best and most hygienic which obviously falls under a common trope of male celebrities educating female consumers about the sponsor's product so there's that whole set Jeez. then but there's also kind of like the more interesting sort of other version of this cam- ad campaign shows the flip side of the meat is masculine motif. So if meat eating is connected to power and class, as we've sort of talked about already, not eating meat makes you less manly. Is sort mm-hmm. of the way that the rhetoric goes. So one of these ads shows a young man being called lame by his friend for not choosing free boy. 
And another shows a woman flanked by Tony Ramos teasing her male partner for making like the same mistake. Like she was like, oh, honey, can you get the meat? And he just like grabs random and she's like, oh, haven't you learned? Like you should always choose free boy. So yeah. So according to the narrative of this ad campaign, a man without a preference for free boy is a man whose manhood is in question. And in general, a man who doesn't pay attention or doesn't want to eat meat is his manhood is certainly in question. I, that's really interesting. I wonder how, uh, okay, just like in general, how many <clears throat> vegetarians, are, like the split of gender within like the vegetarian vegan community. Cause I feel like I really don't know very many men who are vegetarian. It's all women. Oh, Yes. I read like the beginning of this article on quote unquote hegenism. What was that? Sorry? Hegenism. So it's like male veganism. So in North America, obviously manhood can be seen as existing in a somewhat precarious state. It is easily lost and certainly requires near constant validation and like reproving. <laughs> well, if that isn't the truth right there. Yeah. Which is, it sucks. That shouldn't like, why should we care? It's Gender is fake. feminism, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, and also like what, like the fact that it's like, why is being masculine good and being seen as feminine bad? It's like, <laughs> yep. So as more and more people, including men, move away from a meat and potatoes diet, some writers have noted a backlash that strives to assert meat as a, quote, essential, primal, and inescapable component of heterosexual masculinity. And then on the other hand, refusing to eat meat, quote, signals weakness, emasculation, and un-American values. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, like, relates to the completely false notion that men need to eat meat to, like, stay strong and manly, which I've experienced, like, firsthand. So, like, all of the, like, many times when I tell people that I'm vegetarian and so is my whole family, like, literally the first question out of everyone's mouth is, like, even your dad? Really? That's interesting. Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. Huh. They're like, oh, yeah, but, like, your dad, too? It's like, yeah, like... Yeah, that's part of the family, bro. Yeah, well, and it seems like there's a whole sort of idea that like it's like it's it, it's impossible and unnatural for like a man to maintain a diet without meat. Oh, what an idea! And the idea of it being like so nationalistic, like you gotta fucking eat a steak for your country. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like if you don't eat this burger, the commies win. Okay. Well, maybe we don't need to that accent the accents i like but yeah kind of which is funny because there's not a less vegetably diet i would say than like a russian one (laughs) i mean don't potatoes and beets count as vegetables that's true that's true although actually just to like get into this horrifying quote from an in like a 19th century century doctor named james beard who like Mm -hmm. i looked up and i was like wait i thought james beard was like just like a chef from like the seventies and it, he is, but this is some other dude Hmm. who was a piece of shit as per this quote, (laughs) quote, the rice eating Hindu 
and Chinese, and the potato-eating Irish peasants are kept in subjugation by the well-fed English, who constitute a nation of beef eaters. That's so cunty. <laughs> it's just, like, insane. Because, first of all, those are just starches, bitch. Like, dude. Calm down. Oh my I'm just, like, goodness. Also, like, English food, like, sorry, but it's trash. There has been an uptick ever since, you know, they invaded India. Thank God for that. Just kidding. Yes. Just 100% kidding. Um, but it's... <laughs> The, the, the like, appropriation of like Indian food for the British has made it a thousand times better. Not that it's like a good thing, but still, just like eating like boiled beef doesn't make you superior, bro. I would rather probably cut my tongue out than eat boiled beef consistently. I'd rather eat plain rice and potatoes. Plain rice and potatoes are the best things ever. Potatoes are the only joy left in this crapshoot of a world. <laughs> nutritiously poor that's fine here for a good time not a long time um yeah so that's fun like eating meat of course because it's like a masculine thing then is obviously justification for colonialism according to jerks That's, like, basically all I have. I downloaded an article about the way people wrote about the Donner Party and, like, meat. So, really excited about that. But I figured maybe getting into, like, full cannibalism was a bit. Ugh. Well, <sighs> I think basically the gist of it is, like, yeah, Wagyu. She fancy. And she does. She fancy. But, like, I don't know. Maybe don't get too fancy about it. That's, yeah, I think that's it because, like, obviously it's cool to, like, eat this product that's, like, really well raised and, like, super interesting and, you know, has a different taste profile because I think one of the great joys in life is discovering different tastes and different, like, flavors and stuff. But, like, not to the point where we need to question our masculinity if we don't eat steak and, like, (laughs) you know, spread mad cow disease. So. Yeah. And, like, just because... Just because something's good doesn't mean you need to eat, like, 20 ounces of it. And like, yeah. It's like, yeah. you know. Ugh. All right, well, that's that. See you later. That's that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I guess we should probably have been mentioning that, like, for all of our sources and stuff, go to show notes. We, you know, we're trying to not just be full, like, copyright infringers as best we can. I mean, speak sort for yourself. Of. I'm just completely... Copyright infringed forever. Madame Pleasurisme. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, my French is weak. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Okay, bye.